Uh, we are in a book of James. If you're new or visiting this morning, it's welcome. Glad you're here, and whether it's for a Sunday or a week, maybe it's an oasis time in your life, or maybe you need a church home and you're looking for a church home, come and talk to us. We'll talk to you, and we can see what we can do about that. But we're in James, and so take your Bibles, take your phones, whatever you use, and uh, we're going to start in chapter 1. This morning we're covering verses 26 and 27. And so it reads like this. If anyone thinks he's religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained by the world. Not a lot of scripture, but a lot of power in it. Let's pray. Lord, when we come, we recognize there's all kinds of layers things you can see from your side that we can't see. We have been in an amazing place of you speaking among us as we've been going through this series and just all kinds of comments and emails and conversations have taken place and it's obviously that, it's obviously mean that you're breaking open something. And so we come this morning recognizing that um, our dependency on you is so important and we just want to give that, the service and the time to you before we launch into it, and we ask for that in your name. Amen. All right. So whenever you get into this section of James, um, the verses that usually jump out and everybody uh, hones in are are the ones commented above on the verses about the widow and the orphans, right? And uh, we're going to get to that in a second, but it's really easy to skip verse 26. And that's because verse 26 is kind of a continuation of the theme that we were in in verses 19 through 25. And so uh, it's kind of like, okay, we heard that before and we'll move on. But I want to pause in verse 26. Uh, A lot of you have been having so much fun with me parking in your business and asking if I've been in the car with you or at home. And no, I have not. And I just want you to know that uh, I am as guilty of all the stuff that I'm talking to you about as you are. All right, so we can ride this boat together. Uh, I am not above this. But remember two weeks ago, we talked about two things. One was being way too quick to speak, uh, that when there is an abundance of words, there's usually sin, and the need to restrain my tongue. Uh, We talked about that. And then the second one was the being quick to anger. Just that flash anger inside of a person that lets you know anger isn't as near out of our spirit as we think it is, right? Right? We often would say, I'm not angry anymore. And then the flashes in our spirit tell us, well, not quite as conquered as you thought, right? And so James then underlines the point here in emphasis for verse 26. Look at it again. Look what he says. If anyone thinks he's religious... Now, we don't use the word religion anymore because religion has taken on a very bad connotation because religion means self-righteous, self-promoting, that sort of thing. In James's day, religion was something that you strive for. A person who had religion was, we would say, like today, a person who had a faith, right? So we would say, for example, we wouldn't say religion, eh? we would say if you're a Christian, right? And that's how you have to interpret. So um, if anyone thinks he's religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. In other words, if you think you're a Christian, And you pride yourself on being a godly person, which, if you think about it, is an oxymoron in and of itself, right? A godly person being proud of... uh, Oh, well, anyways. (laughs) And it says, and you can't control your tongue, 
your religion is worthless. Uh, as we would say, you're blowing smoke or nobody's going to be impressed. It's not of value, right? Everybody's going to see through that pretty clearly. The bridling of the tongue is going to be a major theme in chapter 3. We'll go through an entire chapter that deals with the tongue. And now you can understand why a lot of people don't like the book of James, right? Can we move on to something else, please? Thank you very much. But I want to show you, it's a really strong statement, right? That if you consider yourself a Christian, you consider yourself a person who has a relationship with God, but you can't bridle your tongue, your religion is worthless. Uh, it's a strong, and it's a, it's a penetrating assessment of us. Notice again the issue here that James ties with the issue of deception and the role that the tongue plays in it. In other words, James seemed to indicate the more that you talk, the more you'll deceive yourself, which I have found to be true. In James's era, people were caustic. Just read the exchanges between Jesus and the Pharisees, right? Those were some pretty pitched verbal battles that they had. They were intense, combative, and very adept at slinging a well-placed slur and making sure it hit its mark. Uh, we wouldn't be too far from that in our culture either, right? We're pretty good at it. Paul captures the same sentiment in Romans chapter 3 when he identifies the same problem. So again, if you want to follow along, turn to Romans chapter 3. And Paul says this, All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. And Paul here is talking about what the impact has been of what we would call original sin. That all have stained, uh, been stained by it and all have fallen short of the glory of God. None of us can actually get there in our own merits. But when, you're, when Paul says this, what does Paul give as evidence for this lack of goodness? What does he point out that is the, the symptom of it? How have we all turned aside? Or how have we become worthless? And Paul would say, along with James, it's the way we use our tongues. That the tongue reflects something. Paul says this, Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of ass, that's a poisonous, spiry little snake out of Egypt, familiar with Cleopatra and that whole thing. The venom of ass is under their lips and their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. So Paul and James together both identify this issue of how we talk. What's the motive behind what we say, uh, how it sets us up. And they make the connection between what's going on in the heart and what's going on with the tongue? The tongue is, uh, by them, a conduit or a reflector of what's being manufactured on the inside. Now, some of us are smart, and we just don't talk, right? Because, uh, as Proverbs says, even if a fool stays silent, he'll be considered wise, right? And we know if we're going to say something, we might blurt it out or cause offense. So our uh, mode of operation is just to say nothing. That's... Uh, wiser than uh, some of the rest of us who just flap our lips all the time and then about three weeks later go, maybe I shouldn't have said that, right? Um, but even if you don't say anything, it doesn't mean you're okay with it because it's still being manufactured in your heart, right? And it's this issue of what the heart manufactures. What is being manufactured in the heart? Well, Jesus was pretty clear on this. Here's his assessment. If you turn to Matthew 15... And uh, look there, we'll start in verse 10. And this was the issue where the disciples had rolled some oats or wheat in their hand and had eaten it without washing their hands and a, 
a big tizzy broke out and a confrontation between the Pharisees and Jesus. And he said, hear this and understand. It is not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but what comes out of the mouth. This defiles the person. And he expounds it further. If you go down to uh, verse 18, Jesus says, But what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart. And this is what defiles a person. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, and slander. These are what defile a person. But to eat with unwashed hands does not defile anyone. Uh, we're often, if you think about it, very careful about what we put into our mouths, right? Uh, many of us are uh, very food conscious and will only certain things. And James is saying we need to be just as conscious, if not more so, about what comes out of our mouth. That that's really more of a problem than what goes into the mouth. This issue of the tongue uh, is a big topic and it's, it's made painfully clear in a place of Scripture that often we just kind of blow by and we don't think about the, the, um, the place that the person was in on it. But um, we can see the anguish in a person. And this is the prophet Isaiah. When the prophet Isaiah sees the all-holy God, um, what is his cry of anguish? What does he identify as part of the problem? What's the immediate identification of what's wrong between him and God? Right? When he, wow, what? And he recognizes something's wrong. If you turn to Isaiah chapter 6, it reads like this In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. And above him stood the seraphim, each had six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. And the whole earth is full of his glory. And then Isaiah records, And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. And then I said, this is Isaiah, crying out, Woe is me, for I am lost. It just became clear in a microsecond as he saw the holiness of God. He said, I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, and your sin is atoned for. Notice the immediate connection between unholiness and unclean lips. And we're talking about the prophet Isaiah, one of the most holy guys that has ever lived in the history of the planet. And when this man, a prophet of the Lord, one of the great prophets of the Lord, one of the men that God's word came from and out and through, sees the holy God, he is wrecked. And he goes, oh man, I am undone because I am a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips. Uh, Those of you who are older, has the language of our culture changed in the last 20 years? Have you noticed? You as adults would be shocked if you walked into the high schools and junior highs today and heard the language that are, is used. Uh, our, this is what our kids constantly are up against, uh, being unstained by that. We'll talk some more about that next week. But um, the language shift in our culture has gone towards unholy talk. Uh, There's no longer a restraint in the media or in persons. They're 
used to be a restraint, particularly among ladies. That is not true anymore either. And so they can let it fly as, as well as the men can. But Isaiah goes, we are undone when he caught how holy God was. The second thing that tells you how intense the picture was, it says the angel went and took one of the burning coals from the fire. And you would think, well, the angel is an angel. he just pick it up, right? No, it says the angel used tongs, right? Grabbed the tongs, went over to Isaiah. And then it says he touched his lips and said, okay, your sin's been atoned for. You're now clean. That is not a good picture for me. All right? Uh, that sounds awfully painful. Okay, and let me tell you why. In my past, uh, when we were boys, boys liked to play sword fights, particularly with aluminum tent poles. And uh, me and my buddy Greg Wilcox were out burning the trash. And while we were burning the trash, uh, you know, we had the barrel and my, uh, his was in the barrel and we were sword playing. So he grabs his out and we start sword playing. And I thought I'd be really clever and quick and I thought I'd grab his pole and I grabbed his pole and just went like this and just smoke was coming out of my hand. I went, Right? And I go in the house and it's sizzling and peeling off and I, right, and mom instantly put it in water and ice and I sat there and like, it took like six months for that to heal up. And I never forgot that smell. Right? Anytime I pick up on this, I'm like, whoa, that everything comes back as like PTSD kind of thing, right? So when I hear that angel took that coal and touched it to his lips, I'm like, ha! Ah, that is not a good picture, Okay? of what it takes for God to purify how dirty our lips are. And that's for Isaiah. I'm thinking, if that's for Isaiah, what is that for me? Right? Ah! So, why that's important is one of the main jobs of the Holy Spirit. If you think about your sanctification process, our sanctification process, making us more like Jesus, one of the main jobs of the Holy Spirit is the process of cleansing our lips, cleaning our speech up, uh, cleaning up our heart so that our speech is clean. So the bridling of the tongue is no easy task, and my prayer for this morning is may God touch our lips as well, and may our sin be atoned for. For if Scripture is accurate, not one of us doesn't sin with our lips. And we'll talk more about that. As I mentioned, we get a fuller dose of this in chapter 3, but that's enough for this morning. Let's move on to the next point. What do you think? All right. The next verse in James is a counterweight to verse 26. If failing to bridle the tongue is false religion, then the question, and, and worthless in the estimation of James, then the question is, what is true religion? And James says this, religion that is pure and undefiled before God, the Father, is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained by the world. We'll do the first two parts of this verse. Uh, next week we'll cover being unstained by the world. That's a topic in and of itself. But religion that is pure and undefiled before God consists of these two points, James says, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained by the world. So let's look at that first point. We're in verse 27. By the way, there was a very practical reason why this stood out to James as a, a, a true expression of faith. Um, there was a practical reason that James points this out, because they were in the middle of a persecution. And many of the men in the church had been killed or imprisoned. Paul was on a rampage. 
They were raiding houses. They were being torn out. They were being thrown in jail, beaten. Uh, scripture indicates many of them were killed. And so there were suddenly widows and orphans uh, fleeing for their lives, trying to find out where they could disperse to, where they could find uh, family and, and places to stay. And so James is saying, make sure you take care of the widow and orphan. But it's also important to note that this is not a new instruction. James didn't create this off the top of his head, that this has always been uh, the heart of God. It's found throughout the Old Testament. God has a huge heart for those who are the vulnerable, those who are the marginal, those who have not. And always the widow and orphans has been the stereotypical picture of people who are uh, in a vulnerable place. The widow and orphan are mentioned five times in the book of Deuteronomy alone. Uh, let's just go through it. it. It would have been easier if it was on the screen, but follow with me, right? Deuteronomy 10, turn there. Deuteronomy 10, 18 says this, He, God, executes justice for the orphan and the widow and shows his love for the alien by giving him food and clothing. In other words, God has a special heart for providing for those who have not, the orphan, the widow, and the alien. In Deuteronomy 14, verse 29, the Levite, because he has no portion or inheritance among you, the alien, the orphan, and the widow who are in your town shall come and eat and be satisfied in order that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hand which you do. If you read that section of Deuteronomy there, it's talking about how they are supposed to function as a community together. And one of the instructions is make sure you take care of the Levite, who is your priest. Make sure you take care of the sojourner or the alien who's among you, the one who's come to Israel because of God's great name and wants to be a part of it, and then the orphan and the widow. So in other words, the community is responsible to take care of the widows and the orphan. But it also takes an individual response and action for the community to do so. Um, and here's what I mean by that. Community can be another word for they, right? They ought to do that. For example, if you think of the, the church kitchen, right? If everybody owns it, nobody owns it. Right? And so they will clean it up. They will put the dishes away. They will haul out the trash. Well, who's the they? Right? It's that mysterious somebody else that's obviously obligated besides me. Because that couldn't possibly pertain to me because I have other holy things to do than clean up the church kitchen. Right? And James is saying the same way when it comes to taking care of the widow and the orphan, it can become a they. The church should do that. They ought to take care of the widow and orphan. Glad that's off my play. Glad they are doing that. And that's not what James is saying here. James is not writing specifically to a church, but individual believers who are a church. Right? This book is going out to individuals that have been scattered and they're reading it in their little uh, groups that they're collected in. So the question then becomes... Um, when does it become I instead of they? When does it become I? When do I get involved? When do I take a step? I need to get involved. I need to help provide. God sees it as a part of being able, not because I have to, but being blessed by Him. It says if you do these things, you'll be blessed. Look at uh, here in Jeremiah. Jeremiah chapter 7, verses 5 and 7 says... 
For if you truly amend your ways and your deeds, and if you truly practice justice between a man and his neighbor, if you do not oppress the alien, the orphan, and, or the widow, and do not shed innocent blood in this place, nor walk after other gods to your own ruin, then will I let you dwell in this place in the land that I gave to your fathers forever and ever. It became a, uh, a way for them to have a blessing response from God. The widow and orphan were often tied to what used to be called, uh, the word for it was charity, right? Through love and charity, that was the Christian refrain of it, and that's how uh, we respond. Today we call it generosity. We use a different word, which is okay. Same thing, essentially, charity, generosity. But the sense is the same, providing for those who can't provide for themselves. Deuteronomy 24 actually gives instructions in their farming practices. It says, as you farm, now we don't live in a farming culture, but they were, and he says, as you farm, here's what you do. He says, when you reap the harvest of your field and have forgotten a sheaf in the field, he says, you shall not go back and get it. It shall be for who? The alien, the orphan, and the widow. In order that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hands. And when you beat your olive tree, you shall not go over the boughs again. It shall be for the alien, for the orphan, and for the widow. And so God was saying, hey, leave some. Leave some. People are going to come walking through and they can get some grain from that and they can get a few olives and they can do that. Leave that for the alien, the orphan, and the widow. Right? Don't take everything and clean it clean and get the most you can from it. Leave some for other people. Now, the question is, how do you do that in technological society? Do you walk out on the street and hand an iPad to somebody? Right? Uh, and leave a little memory for them, right? Don't take all the memory, just a little, you know. It, it's a little more complicated, and we'll talk about it in a second, but there are places where you can still connect with this. We'll talk through that. In Jeremiah 22, it's also, uh, the tying the widow and orphan is also an issue of justice. Jeremiah 22 says, Do justice and righteousness, and deliver the one who's been robbed from the power of his oppressor, or by the power of his oppressor. Another one who's been cleaned out by somebody who got bullied and is the strong man. Also, do not mistreat or do violence to the stranger, the orphan or the widow, and do not shed innocent blood in this place. And it's not only tied to justice, but it's also tied to the fear of God. If you fear God, if you treat Him as holy, you will take care of the alien, the widow, and the orphan. Malachi is the last book of the Old Testament, and uh, it's an important book for us because it's the book that it's the last time God speaks before the lights go out. Right? After this, it's 400 years before we hear from Him again. And in that, what are called the years of silence, um, you know, the, Israel still goes on as a nation, but God actively speaking had stopped. And so it's important to look at what God was highlighting in that last book before the lights went out. Right? What was he instructing them to do? He said, then I will draw near to you for judgment. In other words, I'm going to come to you as a nation and I will be a swift witness against these, against the sorcerer, against adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the wage earner and his wages, the widow and the orphan and those who turn aside the alien and do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, you, O sons of Jacob, are not consumed. It wasn't that they were so righteous. God says, the reason you're still a nation is because I've been kind to you. Would that be true of the United States? 
It's not because we're such a righteous country, right? It's because God has been kind to us. But if we don't respond, there will come a time when the lights go out. We don't know when that is. We hope it's not during our lifetimes. We hope the Lord will come back. We hope for good things. We hope for repentance. We hope for revival. But the odds are really good that we probably won't turn. The question for Israel was, all right, how did they respond as a nation? Uh, had, had they kept the charge? And what was Jesus' assessment of the situation when he showed up? Uh, turn your Bibles to Luke chapter 20. And uh, Jesus is talking about the Pharisees. And he says this in the hearing of the people. He said, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and love greetings in the marketplaces and the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. They will receive a greater condemnation. So the question was, had they listened? And the answer was, no, they had not. And when Jesus came, he saw them all scrambling for power and position. They all wanted to go up the ladder. And the higher up the ladder they could get, the better it was. And if they had to throw somebody underneath the bus so they could get another rung up the ladder, they were more than willing to do that. So instead of being protectors of the vulnerable and the innocent, they actually became devourers. Those are Jesus' actual words. It's how he saw it of the vulnerable and innocent. And widows in that culture were extremely uh, vulnerable. Uh, Women were treated as a piece of property at that time. They had no rights and no way to make a living. If their husband died, they were totally dependent on the community and relatives. Um, If you want to get a picture of this, just read the book of Ruth. It'll give you a historical context for it. I'm going to ask the uh, men to come forward and serve communion for us today. So guys, if you'd come and do that. And while they're doing that, I think something else gets missed in this passage that uh, stood out to me. We so often focus hard on the widow and the orphan that often we forget about the great heart of God that's pictured here. Why is it so great that God focuses, ever thought of what makes God great, that his heart focuses on the orphan and the widow? Why is that good news for us? Well, I think it's good news because if you go back, remember the Pharisees? Remember I said how they were all about getting to the top? Uh, They looked at being spiritual, the the Christian life. They looked at uh, responding to God and they kind of went, you know what? That's a nice deal. Oops. Thank you, Steve. But that's not the way the world really works. They looked at what God said and they looked at what the world said and weighed the two out and said, you know what? God's way doesn't get you anywhere. Let's go the way of the world. Let's crank it for power. What really matters is how much money you've got. What really matters is how much control you've got. What really matters is how far you got. This stuff of giving your wealth away to other people is baloney. We've tried that as a nation. It's not gotten us ahead. We're not the head of nations. God's stuff doesn't work, so we're just capitulating over to what the world says. Let's shake, rattle, and roll the survival of the fittest, and and we're going to survive. And that's how they became fairly efficient at being brutal and ruthless, as you could see in the life of Jesus. But stop and think for a minute. The great heart of God is this. He's going in the opposite direction. God's not going up, he's going down. 
We think, think about when we talk about Jesus, we think of Jesus coming down, right? Now, obviously, that's a, a metaphor at best, but um, God's not going up. If God were to go up, it presents an enormous problem for us as humans. Let me explain why. Think about, let's do a human illustration. Think about um, if you wanted to see a sports star, all right? So, uh, you know, you wanted to get with one of the Seahawks or one of the Mariners or one of the Patriots, right? You're over there, right? And you, and, and you want to see one of, you, know, you want to an interview with Tom Brady, right? Kathy, you're going to go and have, yeah, okay? So think about who, what sports star you'd really like to have a conversation with or think about a great musician. Some of us, you know, musician or Joel, great chess player. Which chess player would you like to, right? And, or think about um, a movie star, right? Uh, you know, all the different movies that come out, maybe Marvel, and you want to meet one of those people. And so you just think, wow, wouldn't it be awesome to go down to Hollywood and, and camp out in the camper and, and they'll come out of the building and we can have breakfast with them, right? And, and we can talk together. Or maybe uh, it's, a, it's a, a political figure you have a great deal of respect for and, and you'd really like to talk with them. And uh, So think about that type of person and ask yourself this question. How easy is access to that person? Kathy, what's the odds that you will actually ever get a chance to talk to Tom Brady? <clears throat> right? Thank you. Okay? And it's not because you're a bad person. Okay? But there's a whole lot of people like you in the realm of several million who want to do the same thing. And so in our culture, the farther up you go, the less access you have. Right? You can't get to them. They have incredible ways of keeping people like us away from them so that we can't interrupt their day or interrupt their schedule. Now, that has a backside to it. They have a... a, a a problem as well. And here's the problem. They can't do nothing normal. Just say, they can't go to Dairy Queen and get a blizzard when they, it gets warm out. And they can't walk to a grocery store or go out to a park or just walk to a theater. They can't do any of that. You know why? Because there's millions of us who want a chunk of their hide and a chunk of their time. And so access to them becomes non-existent. We don't ever really expect to actually meet somebody like that. And when we do, we're so blown away we can't talk, right? Right? I hope you don't talk like that, Kathy. You'll do better, right? Okay, that's good. But here's why I think that's such an important uh, point. The higher you go, the more exclusive it gets. But that is not true of God. Think about God. You have access. If anybody wanted to be exclusive. If anybody could be hard to have access to, if anybody wanted to protect their privacy and keep the minions out, wouldn't it be God? He could just put his thumb on the deal and shut the whole thing down. But here's what God's saying when he's talking about the widow and the orphan, the poorest of the poor and the most vulnerable, when he says that uh, they have access then that is really fantastic news. You know why? Because it means we have access too. God has room for the poor. God has room for the vulnerable. God has room for the broken. God has room for the lost. That's the great news of the gospel. You can actually talk to the great one. 
You may never get to a sports star. You may never get to a movie star. You may never get to a politician or a musician or a chess player or all the things I name. But you can access God. He wants to have a conversation with you. And that is absolutely, stunningly phenomenal. That He wants to spend time with people like us. Think about that, would you? Yeah, I'll answer for you. No! I want to be hanging with Tom Brady. I don't want to be hanging with the low lights of Mill Creek. I got better things to do with my time. See, and God reverses the order, and that's great news for us. He goes down the scale, not up the scale. And I think that gets totally lost. God is not like that. Through Jesus, access has been opened and gained. Anyone, no matter how low on the totem pole, not only has access, but can spend as much time with them as they desire. See, we get this all flipped around. We think, oh man, i got to have a quiet time. I read a whole chapter, aren't you happy? Right? And we make it this cranked out, grinding, religious, you know, thing we have to do. Have you ever thought about you can spend as much time with God as you want and He won't refuse you and He won't say no? That's mind-boggling. It becomes the greatest get-to in the universe. It's like, I, I, can sp- I can't spend time with Tom Brady and I can't spend time with Russell Wilson. I can't spend time with Black Panther and all I can spend time with Jesus? Wow! And I just think that is... Uh, something that we completely miss. It tells us God has an absolutely fantastic heart. And because He has a fantastic heart that way, we need to have a fantastic heart that way. So like Him, we need to learn to go down the ladder, not up the ladder. Right? Jesus says you'll find your life if you lose it. That's totally backwards. We don't like that. I want to be on top of the heap, not at the bottom of the heap. And Jesus says, well, but you'll find, if you follow me, Go down the ladder, you're going to find life like you never thought before. Uh, quickly, how is Norfolk practicing pure religion? I, I had some things for up on the screen, but let me just walk through a couple. We're not perfect at it. We're growing in it. We'd like to do a lot better. We're gaining on it, and uh, there's some good things. But first thing is CareNet. Uh, used to be known as Life Choices and protecting the... And nobody's more vulnerable than a baby, right? Especially a baby in a womb. Totally, utterly dependent. Can't do anything. Right? And we're committed to protecting babies. Those are babies, not fetuses. All right? and, and we stand with Karenet in ultrasounds. It's amazing. 85% of women who see that ultrasound recognize it's a baby. Okay? They don't call it a fetus. Anymore. They go, it's a baby. It's, it's changing the world right now as we're here. Step by step, once that woman makes that choice, often the guy is a doorknob and walks. Right? We tend to do that. We abdicate. Not always. But when we do, it creates a tremendous debris field. The gal makes the decision, that's a 20-year choice. How does she do that? Where does she learn the skills? How does she learn to be a mother? How does she learn to provide? How does she do a budget? And that's where step-by-step comes in, and they do a 20-year walk with these families. And they teach them how to, have, how to keep a budget, and they teach them uh, health skills and uh, financial skills and emotional skills and, and spiritual skills, how to have a relationship with the Lord. We do that banquet in December and help them with that ministry. Young Lives uh, has a tremendous program that's out of Young Life called Young Lives, take off of that, uh, with teenage moms, pregnant teenage moms in the area. And, and a number of us are involved with that and we back that. Everett Gospel Mission, helping the disenfranchised, of which are women and kids. And I, I don't know about you, but in this weather, 
I walked out this morning taking the, you know, the cart out with the signs and stuff. And by the time I went up to the road and came back, I was, my hands were froze, right? It was cold. And I'm thinking, I'm out here 15 minutes and I'm whining like a stuck pig because it's cold. And I'm from Wisconsin. You think I'd know better. And I'm cold. I'm like, ah! And I'm thinking, how do people live homeless through a night, let alone an entire winter? Especially women and kids sleeping in a car. How? Wow! We've got to do something about that. And so we cooperate with every gospel mission and help the disenfranchised. We've got a great one going right now uh, up on off of Casino Road. So if you take 99 up to the big Fred Meyer as you're approaching the uh, the Boeing free, freeway there and then take a left on Casino Road. It used to be the Little Red Schoolhouse and there's three ministries now all tied into there. One is uh, Youth for Christ and then Hand in Hand um, is another ministry uh, that we're tying in with there. And um, Jesse, what's Jesse's last name? Jesse, played last Sunday. I'm blanking. Help me. What? Jesse. McNeil. McNeil. There we go. Thank you. Thank you. I couldn't hear you. Bad ears. Um, but Jesse McNeil's brother-in-law, Todd, uh, runs this hand-in-hand ministry. And then along with them is Tyrone running Casino Road Kids Ministry. They are reaching out to all those apartment complexes of which there are hundreds of kids that don't even have, a, when they go back, there's no food. It's that simple. There's just nothing to eat. And so we're jumping in. Matter of fact, we're jumping in this Tuesday uh, again and uh, if you want to help, there's a sign-up sheet out there. We need about five to ten people who are willing to purchase a meal, make a meal, and go there and feed the kids when they gather together when they're meeting with them. John will give us more information on that in a second. Another one is Rest International, literally taking gals off the street from the sex trade industry uh, in this area. We also have uh, internationally Hope Overflowing, Minge in Addis Ababa, Ethiopia. That's Peter and Krista Bond's whole thing and uh, getting the kids off the street. And they're now starting to build homes and get kids off the street. Uh, YWAM, James and Sarah Lund working with townships to help break educational apartheid. It's no longer political apartheid, but it's educational apartheid. If you don't have an education, you can't go anywhere. And so they're working to educate them and get them out of the townships. And then Ryan and Nikki Bailey in Cambodia working to free children from sex trade in Cambodia and there's more. We want to do more. We want to do better. Why do this? Because it's kingdom business. This is what God's all about. And when you do it, you, something happens in your faith that can't happen otherwise. You have to actually do it, though, to experience it. That's why we're encouraging that. Jesus came to help those who couldn't help themselves. That would be us. Anybody been helped by Jesus? Hello. Anybody been helped by Jesus? Amen. Anybody? Got some hands? Right? Say it. Amen. Yes? Hello? Okay. Let's remember He helped us a lot. Some of us don't deserve to be here. Right, Bob? Therefore, we who've been helped are instructed to help those who can't help themselves. Pass it along. If we've been helped, then help others. Who's the others? Well, I'd like to leave us this way as we go into communion. Jesus said something that was really profound and it. It gives us the flip on the picture again. He was talking to a guy and they were having a banquet. And the guy had invited all the honchos of town to come to meet Jesus because... He wanted Jesus to meet all the really important people who just happened to be his friends, right? And so they were all there. And Jesus says this to him. He says, when you give a, a dinner or a banquet, in other words, when you throw a barbecue or a party, that's how we'd say it in America, 
Don't invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or your rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. Jesus said, that's just quid pro quo, right? That's just, you scratch my back, I scratch your back, I do something for you, you do something for me. Hey, no skin lost, we're even. I owe you nothing. Jesus said, don't do that. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they can't repay you. Why would we throw a tremendous banquet in December for people that we never met, people that aren't here, that people we don't see during the year? Why would we do that? Because they can't repay us. It's awesome. Okay? It's a fabulous Jesus thing. Jesus says you'll be blessed because they can't repay you. For for you will be repaid where? At the resurrection of the just. And with that, I want to walk us into communion together. You know, when I come to communion and we're thinking about this, think about what it cost Jesus to reach out to the poor, the widowed, and the orphan. You know, he gave us a picture, right? That picture was to remind us. And he said, this will represent my body, this bread. He said to the disciples, he said, this is going to be broken for you. And he said... This is what it's going to, you're going to never forget this picture of what it costs. He says, but I want you to know, I love you. He says, eat this in memory of me. And then he took the cup and he said, this cup represents my blood, which will be shed for your sins. But he also said, this cup represents the wine. He says, I am never going to share in this again till I come back. And when he comes back, what's going to be thrown? It's going to be the wedding feast of the Lamb, right? This great feast, one of these feasts that Jesus is talking about. And who's going to be at the table? The widowed and the poor and the orphan and the blind and the crippled and the lost and the hurting. Guess what? Such were some of us. Some of us may still be there, right? Life's been a little brutal on us. We're a little beat up. But it's going to be all those people. So Jesus says, hey, will you come down the ladder with me? Instead of going up the ladder, instead of chasing the American dream, will you come down the ladder with me and find those people? Will you throw a banquet for them? Do something for them? Because in the end, we're going to be at a feast. And it will be the feast that we remembered all through eternity. He said, drink this in memory of me. I'm going to have the worship team come up and lead us. And I think they're out in the hallway. There's John. Come on, John. As they come up, would you join me in prayer? I want to give us just a second to think about this. I don't want a guilt thing. I don't want um, a have-to thing. But I want to think about the great heart of God and what has inspired you this morning. What have you seen in His heart that maybe you haven't seen before? Or you've seen it for a long time you just got reminded. And the reminder is clear from the Holy Spirit. Right, I'm looking at the Hardaways and they're going to Papua New Guinea because of this. Right? I'm looking, there's others of us doing this. How could we be encouraged to be more blessed by going down the ladder? Going down the chute with Him? Let's pray. Father, when we think about that, we know that You will ask individual things of us and You will ask that of us and not of others. You're not asking everybody to go to Papua New Guinea, Lord. You are asking that of the Hardaways right now. You may ask that of someone else. You've not asked all of us to do the same thing in terms of exact responsibility, but you've told us all to be responsible with the exact same thing. That is to think about who are the vulnerable, the weak, 
the widows and orphans in our culture and to help us find them. May you help us do that, Lord, better as a church. May we continue to grow in it. And we ask your favor on that in your name. Amen.